All right, wonderful to see everybody today. Why don't we pray together and uh, we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now once again. We bow our hearts and our heads to you, Lord, and we ask for your grace and your mercy to be upon us, and we ask for your favor to visit us, Lord. We pray for your spirit to be pleased to move among our hearts, to give illumination and understanding to the text of Scripture, Lord. Help us to discern your word and to help us to come into greater conformity in our own lives and our own obedience, Lord, uh, to what Scripture teaches. Uh, we thank you, Lord, so much today for the gospel of, of your grace, Lord, that delivers us from the wrath of God, because as Scripture declares, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Give me a, word, give me a, a mouth to speak, Lord, your word, and uh, give your people ears to hear. Give us uh, strength, Lord, to be able to uh, just really imbibe what Scripture is teaching here. Uh, give us the strength, Lord, to, to walk in obedience to your word, to accept from you your counsel, to receive from you all of the words of God, Lord, uh, help us never uh, to have any sort of resistance to anything that your, your scriptures teach us because we know that your word is a lamp to our feet, the guide to our path. So help us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, it was in 1996, uh, that was the year not only of my conversion, that was the year that I picked up a small little booklet in an obscure Christian bookstore, uh, just a single sermon in a paperback booklet that I took home and I read in one sitting. And the title of that sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. Don't know if you've ever read it. Encourage you to read it in one sitting if possible. But I remember after I came out of a flood of tears, having been so struck by the weight of what Jonathan Edwards did in that sermon, I just remember thinking that I had so many false misconceptions of who God is in my mind. And I think that what that is, is it's, it's emblematic of much of evangelicalism today regarding the subject of the wrath of God. I thought, you know, we, we, we're on this passage here in Hebrews 10, and this passage is all about the wrath of God. I thought, you know, we're not good in our contemporary uh, evangelical scene today or in our generation, whatever you want to call it today, we're just not good at either preaching on the wrath of God, we're not good at listening to sermons on the wrath of God. Um, uh, today, authors are not good at writing on the wrath of God, I know because I look at the literature that's being written today and much of evangelicalism, um, and very few books are being written today uh, exclusively dealing with the subject of wrath. Without question, I think that there is sort of a virtual Marcionism that has come upon the church. That is to say, Marcion was a, an ancient heretic of the third century that taught that the passages of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, were to be discarded because of the wrath that was contained in the Old Testament, certainly a, a deity that he found to be 
uh, unmanageable, just uh, a, a, a picture and um, a portrait of God that was just so unsavory to the natural mind that we needed to do away with it. That was Marcion's thought. So for Marcion, uh, no, uh, no, 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 no surprise that he not only did away with the Old Testament canon of Scripture, uh, but he also did away with the book of Revelation. Uh, because it's not just about coming to the Testaments, because of course, um, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with anybody that says, well, you know, I don't like the, the sections in the Old Testament about the wrath of God, and a lot of times you'd say, well, haven't you read the book of Revelation? <laughs> because the book of Revelation is full of the wrath of God, and so Marcion did away with that book as well, and distilled it down to some of the, the, the Bible's epistles and gospels. But um, I think that a lot of people have sort of learned how to navigate through the Bible without exposing themselves, meditating upon, or thinking deeply about the wrath of God. And uh, if what's going on today is any indication of where the church is headed, I think that what is needed is, um, is a, a revival of sorts, a recommitment to preaching the whole counsel of God and not shying away from what the Bible has to say about the wrath of God. We don't come to the Scriptures with a humanistic spirit. We don't come to the Scriptures with the idol of self-esteem. We don't come to the Scriptures with man as the center of all things. If you were to come to the Scriptures, you come to the Scriptures understanding that God is central, that what the Bible is about is, is about the self-disclosure of the being and of the purpose of God, and that we serve God's purpose in this world, that we, that, that we are not central, but God is. That also was an adjustment for me coming from uh, just a a pagan mindset of my own upbringing and my own worldly philosophy and outlook on life that, you know, I was brought up in a culture just like you where from day one you're told from day one that you are the center of the universe. Uh, you are spoiled that way. You are raised that way, many of us. Uh, society certainly is conditioning us that way. Um, and today's society is absolutely no better off. Matter of fact, I would say in much ways it's worse off. I mean, now we live in the society of instantaneous gratification. If you don't uh, know how to do that, just download the app. It goes onto your, your phone, and next thing you know, you're able with superhuman ability to find wherever you want to go, to find whatever you want to do, to you know, be able to take your, your blood pressure on your phone, to be able to uh, find a date on your phone, to be able to find a location, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We live in this fast-paced, instant gratification society where it just strokes our ego, and it makes us feel as if we are that important, that everything needs to be instantly conformed to our human desires. It's just not good because it cultivates more of a humanistic spirit, but really, the book of, the book of Hebrews cares nothing about popular opinion. <laughs> the book of, book of Hebrews of course, is God's revelation of Himself. And in the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews gives us some very, very sober passages of Scripture, some of the strongest texts of Scriptures regarding the whole subject of apostasy and judgment. And we have come upon such a text. I want to point out four things uh, from this text of Scripture not only that uh, is going to 
ultimately lead us to the, the subject of the wrath of God, and that's going to go on into the next time that we're back to this passage in Hebrews. But really, I want to get into the nuts and bolts of apostasy, because that's also what's central here. Let's read, because we're going to focus on the first two verses today. Let's read verse 26 and 27 again. It says this, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But, this is what does remain, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That is what's going to be left over after apostasy has been committed. Now, theologically, let's make it very clear that when we're talking about apostasy, what we're talking about is a departure from your original confession of faith. You are, uh, in the Bible, you are committing apostasy whenever you forfeit your confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whenever you turn your back upon the gospel, uh, either through a false gospel, through uh, atheism, through renouncing the gospel, uh, through an antinomian lifestyle that reveals that you do not in fact believe in the gospel, let's say if you wanted to live in licentiousness or open immorality, you would make it very clear that you in fact do not believe in the biblical gospel and have no intention on living it. Oh, that's all a part of apostasy. But in the Bible, there's two kinds of apostasy that emerge. There is what theologians call temporary apostasy, and then there are that, that which theologians call permanent apostasy. Uh, maybe the two classic examples of each one of these, to me, would be, for example, Peter. There could be no doubt that Peter in the Gospels apostatized from faith in Christ. He denied the Lord vehemently, with cursings, the Bible says, renouncing that he had even known him. There's no question that Peter's apostasy was ugly and that what it took for Peter to stay in the faith was nothing short of the intercessory work of Christ so that Jesus told him, when you return, Peter, I have prayed for your faith. Remember, Jesus told him, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, and when you return, strengthen your brethren. Jesus graciously brought him back from the brink. But there is is also that apostasy that is... uh, the point where people go to that really there's a point of no return. You commit apostasy to the degree that there is no hope left. And of course, on a, maybe on a human level, we can never discern for ourselves when a person had reached that place, but God does and God knows um, that's a permanent apostasy. Judas is probably the most classic example of a permanent apostasy, someone whose heart Satan filled and betrayed the Son of God with a kiss. And I think Judas is a, a, a sad, tragic example, but it provides an informative example for us to understand the nature of apostasy because every point that I'm going to make out of this text, I say, in one sense, can be applied to Judas himself. That his apostasy was a matter of sin, that his apostasy is a matter of premeditation and culp- uh, culpability, that his apostasy was fatal, and that it resulted in hostility. So let's look at that. Number one, 
as it, as it uh, relates to the new covenant, because that's really what we're looking at here, someone who has turned their back on the new covenant. So number one, rejection of the new covenant is a matter of sin or is sinful, because that's what the text says. For if we go on sinning willfully, and then he goes on to say there remains no sacrifice for sin. This is important because we can never, ever come to the conclusion that apostasy is something that is a result of a person's sophisticated thought process, that they have actually come to a reasonable position, a philosophy, an outlook on life, a worldview that informed them in a way that they were not informed previously. No, in the Bible, it is a matter of sin. It is as simple as a person deciding to hate God and to love sin. It's that strong. Uh, the picture of unbelief and the picture of a reprobate mind and the picture of an apostate is that frank. It is that clear. For example, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 3, you know, the Apostle John is known to be the, uh, the, the apostle of light and darkness. In other words, for the Apostle John, he didn't see anything as a gray area. <laughs> he saw everything as black and white, clear cut, either truth or error. There was no in-between for John. And that's the way first, second, and third John are written. But in the Gospel of John in chapter 3, notice the, notice the dynamic that is at work in apostasy and unbelief in general. This is what it says. Beginning in verse 19, it says, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. What causes a person to apostatize from the truth? It is nothing else than a, 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 an intoxication, an infatuation, and to use John's language here, a love for darkness rather than for the light. Light has come into the world. In other words, there is an objective, clear, discernible sort of opportunity. There is a clear presentation. There is a setting forth of the solution, of the remedy. And it is the light. But, as is the nature of man, he loves darkness rather than light. Everyone who does evil hates the light. You see that? Uh, for John, it's not just a passive unbelief. It's not an accidental apostasy. It's not an accidental rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a positive hating of the light. They hate the light, and they do not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Conversely, but he who practices the truth, he comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. Now, there, there's another, there's another uh, passage here. There's a parallel. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, because part of the whole antichrist system is that there is an influence that results from, a again, if we want to use the language of John, a rejection of the light, a rejection of the truth, a rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and an embrace of darkness, a love with darkness, so that it's a matter of love. Isn't that remarkable? A sinful unbelief, apostasy, rejection, perishing, remaining in an unregenerate, reprobate state is a matter of loving or love misplaced. 
It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, it says, And that lawless one will, will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, to bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is, the one whose coming is accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish. Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. It is a rejection of the propositional aspects of the gospel. That is the reason why people perish. And back to Hebrews, that is the reason why the apostate is judged. Because they make a conscientious, willful, ongoing rejection of the new covenant, basically the gospel of the new covenant. Notice also, therefore, that this sin in the book of Hebrews is so great uh, because such great light has come. Um, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 2, the author has already introduced the potential for catastrophe in light of the fact that great light has dawned in Christ. Look at, look at Hebrews 2 verse 1. It says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty that is under the old covenant, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You see that? And then here comes what was revealed through the Lord, through the apostles, and ultimately to the audience of Hebrews. What has come is that God has made the final definitive disclosure of Himself in His Son, Jesus. I have to read chapter 1 of Hebrews, verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. That passage of Scripture is so definitive for the progress of revelation that what has come in Christ is not only God's final word, but in a sense it is God's most intense and clear and full word concerning His Son, Jesus. But notice that this sin is also an ongoing issue. It says, if we go on sinning, and the present active participle there in the Greek suggests that this is a continual, habitual practice of sin. How do you know the difference between when people suggest to you, well, we're all sinners, aren't we? When you're trying to put your hand on somebody's sinful lifestyle, and you're trying to pinpoint somebody's guilt, and you're trying to show them that they're in need of the gospel, and they say, well, we're all sinners, aren't we not? Well, the, the Bible makes a very clear distinction between the fact that all of us do in fact sin versus making a practice of sin or having a habitual lifestyle, I would say, of impenitent sin. And that's what's going on here. They do not want to repent of their unbelief regarding the new covenant. Let's get to the um, exegetically. Let's get to the original situation in Hebrews to try to draw out when this was written, what specifically does the author have in mind? Well, bear in mind that what's going on in Hebrews is that there is a constant admonition to a select group of, 
uh, professing believers to go on to maturity, to press into the things of God, to leave behind the types and the shadows, to leave behind the, 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 the weak and useless things of the law, and to go further into what the new covenant has ushered in. What was happening during the book of Hebrews is that there were a group of Christians, apparently professing Christians, who were making an attempt to go back under the law, to go back to the Old Testament types and shadows, to go back to the ceremonies, to the, go back to the Jewishness of the Old Testament. That's why you've got to be very careful because even today there are modern expressions of this where people will actually... Um, put pressure on you to embrace the fact that the more Jewish you are in your spirituality, the more spiritual you are. So Messianic congregations, for example, in my opinion, they tend to err on this subject, uh, thinking that New Covenant Christians are still better off if they go back to celebrating the feasts, the customs, the Sabbaths, the blue moons, the, the, the new moons, the blue moons, the new moons, the, the calendars of Israel. But the Bible deals with that. Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul even makes it very clear. If you go back to the Jewish calendar, according to the Apostle Paul, and this is staggering, going back to the Jewish calendar after being in the new covenant, in Paul, who is the Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, Paul says it is paganism. Wow. Uh, quickly, turn there with me to Galatians chapter 4. Just, I, want you, I want to show you this for, for this reason because that is really strong language. Judaism devoid of Christ is paganism. And that's the way that Paul saw it. Look with me at Galatians chapter 4 verse 8. It says, however, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves of those which by nature are no gods. Now, verse 8 is underscoring the fact that the Galatians used to be pagan Gentile worshipers or, gen or pagan Gentiles. But look at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again? Watch this. To the weak, worthless, elementary things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. What's the point of that Galatians text? Well, in Galatians, they're going back there. is not talking about a return to paganism properly but it's actually succumbing to the, Pharisee, or to the Judaizers that were trying to enforce circumcision upon a new covenant church, saying, unless you undergo circumcision and begin to observe the Jewish calendar, you will not be in covenant standing with God. Paul saw that equivalent to a return to paganism. That's what is meant by the elementary things. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul uses this language again of the elementary things, and there, skenao, uh, uh, that word there, is, or excuse me, stokeo, uh, uh, is actually, that word is actually referring to actual Greek paganism. But he uses it here to refer to a return to Judaism without Christ. Remarkable, absolutely remarkable, and, and legalism and, and everything else that's involved. 
So for the book of Hebrews, something like that is possible of taking place. There's a big debate. Has it already taken place? Has pe- have people in the audience of Hebrews, have they already apostatized? Does the author or the pastor here, does he fear that apostasy will happen? Well, we don't know precisely. All we know is that it was a reality. It was definitely a reality. It was a potential thing that was really something that could take place and maybe even already did take place with some individuals. Sadly, I've seen this happen, and uh, it's very sad. I, I, I knew a sister in Christ who began dabbling into more of a Jewish messianic expression of Christianity, and today she has renounced Jesus Christ, moved herself to Israel, and is once again practicing the feasts and the Sabbaths and the new moons and all of the rituals of Judaism, thinking that that's the true religion and that Jesus was a false messiah. Unbelievable. So this is extremely relevant, not just for that particular aspect of apostasy in a Jewish expression, but, but, but generally in terms of all sin, being vigilant to guard our hearts and our minds. Notice that it's not just an ongoing sin, but notice that, it, that it's also premeditated. Look at the phrase again in Hebrews, for if we go on sinning willfully, this is the clincher, after receiving knowledge of the truth. And there remains no sacrifice. These folks had already received the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, not only is there premeditation, but there's also culpability. Because the apostate has received the truth. They know the truth. They've been exposed to the truth. And now it's kind of like the high-handed sin of Israel. They, They sin against the knowledge that they know. And they persist in that sin. And in a premeditated fashion, they go through with that sin and they turn their back on the finished work of Jesus Christ, His atoning sacrifice. So it appears that here in Hebrews, and I just did a study of what it is that Hebrews presents and what it is that these people were accountable for. Well, for example, in Hebrews, they understood the merits of Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, the fact that through the moral righteousness of Jesus, redemption was purchased, was earned by Christ. Also, they rejected Jesus' authority, chapter 1, verses 4 and following. They also rejected Jesus' sonship, chapter 3, verse 6, that He is a greater servant than Moses because He is a son. They also rejected the fact that Christ was the fulfillment of the typology of the Old Testament. And ultimately, they reject the perfect once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It is a dreadful, dreadful thing when a person comes to the light, comes to the truth, but even more so, apparently, according to Hebrews, they even receive the truth. They make an espousal. They make an allegiance to the truth, a profession to the truth. They accept all of the magnificent things that the gospel brings and promises to them. And then in an act of willful, premeditated apostasy, they turn their back on that light. It's just a, a really somber, somber passage of Scripture. They look at the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and they turn away from it. And because of that, they are worthy of judgment. Therefore, it's not just premeditated. It's not just a matter of sin, 
But it's also a fatal decision. Rejection of the new covenant is also fatal. Look at what it says again. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, what's interesting about this, and I'm going to argue this point. This is, this is what I think the theology of Hebrews is giving us. Go back with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and that's a very thorny theological passage because what seems to be communicated there is that once a person falls away, it is not possible to renew them again to repentance. And so that sort, sorts of, sort of uh, tends to cause all sorts of debates theologically, exegetically. The scholars debate exactly what is that talking about. Well, I think that there's a, there's a continuity there in verse 6 when it says, when they've fallen away, it is impossible to renew them to repentance. But I think this is a parallel passage. In other words, because the book of Hebrews is giving us one harmonious theology of perseverance and unbelief and apostasy altogether. It's giving us one harmonious theology. The author of Hebrews is not contradicting himself. So in the same breath that Hebrews is saying it is not possible to renew a person to repentance, in the same breath that the author of Hebrews is saying that there is no longer a sacrifice for that person, the same author of Hebrews makes it very clear that this is not at all teaching anything like loss of salvation. Because in Hebrews chapter 9 and in many other places, for example, Hebrews 10, 14, For by one offering he has perfected for all time, not temporarily, not for (laughs) part-time. This is not a part-time job on behalf of Christ. This is a full-time job. He says, for all time, those who are sanctified. This is the perfect work of Christ's sacrifice. So what's happening in Hebrews 10 is the same thing that's happening, I think, in Hebrews chapter 6. These are people that had a profession but they did not have a possession of salvation. And I think that's the way that it ought to be interpreted. But what this also makes clear is that to leave the new covenant is to make a fatal decision, spiritually speaking, because there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. In other words, you can now find forgiveness, atonement, propitiation, satisfaction, nowhere else. There's nowhere that you can go from here. My friend who I told you about, who has gone back to Judaism, what she went back to is she went back to finding out there's no sacrifice for sin here. There's no atonement. And I mean, there, the illustration is really graphic because guess what? She went back to Judaism. They don't even have a temple. They don't even have an altar. They don't even have a sacrificial system. They don't even have a priesthood. They don't have a holy of holies. They don't have anything. And therefore, she went back to a system devoid of forgiveness. Let us not forget that the high point of the new covenant, go back to chapter 10, verse 16, the high point of the new covenant, the apex of it, the whole point of it is the blessings that flow from the new covenant, and the ultimate blessing is that we are forgiven. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their heart, 
And on their mind, I will write them, verse 17, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering of sin. That's why Jesus' sacrifice is called the once for all sacrifice. In fact, that little Greek word, once for all, actually implies an unrepeatable event. The sacrifice of Jesus cannot be repeated. Therefore, you can't go anywhere to repeat what He did because it's an irrepeatable act. It's a once for all. It's permanent. And it is definitive. Totally definitive. That's what's going on. Peter O'Brien, let me just kind of echo what he says here. This is what Peter O'Brien says here. If through the gospel people have received the knowledge of the truth and then turn their backs on it, No sacrifice for sins is left. It cannot be otherwise, he says. Christ, by a single perfect sacrifice, has provided complete cleansing for sins and put an end to other sacrifices. But if this way of forgiveness and acceptance with God through the death of His Son has been totally repudiated, all hope of salvation is lost." On the surface level, when a person turns their back on Christ, because we are, not as om- we are not omniscient as God is, we don't know if the person has actually committed a temporary or permanent apostasy. Our duty is therefore to go through the channels of church discipline, to confront them on their sin, to put them out of their church for their, sin- their, their open rebellion and, 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 and open sin in the church in hopes that we will win our brother or sister back again. But if they do not return back to us again, then all hope for salvation is lost, and this person is going to hear this awful, terrifying judgment being pronounced, or this, this verse here that says, a terrifying expectation of judgment. An impending judgment. In other words, that person who has decisively, definitively, permanently turned their back on the gospel, how can they sleep at night? And this is why I was brought to the subject of the wrath of God. Because the wrath of God, I think, today it's being weakened, it's being watered down. Oh, we're so far from the Puritans. We're so far from those days where the wrath of God was a common subject that man would talk about and would threaten the sinner with and would present them and show them as Jonathan Edwards would to show them, look, you're like a spider dangling on the edge of destruction. You're, like a, little, you're a spider on a thread. God is dangling you over the pit of hell and the fires of hell are ready to devour you. Will you not awaken to this? Will you still sleep? Think about it. The person who has turned their back on the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, how can they have any rest at all? How does Bar Erdman sleep at night? Knowing that he has been given so much light, he has read it in the original languages, 
He has read it in the Greek. He has read it in the Hebrew. He knows that there are certain variants in the text of Scripture that it doesn't matter which variant you choose. It says the same thing. No matter which way you go, if you use the Nessialon or the UBS or the, or the Texas Receptus or whichever text you go with, you still are confronted with the same Greek words. Unless you repent, you will perish. Talk about Bart Ehrman. I had a chance to meet with him briefly. I told you this story. And I said, um, Bart, I just have one question for you. Now that you have renounced Christianity, um, where do you get the basis for morals, meaning, and beauty? And he says, oh, everybody knows that. I said, well, explain without appealing to the Christian faith. How do you have a consistent epistemology, theory of knowledge. And he says, I, I don't have time to talk to you about this. I said, this is what happens to you when you reject the truth. I said, the Bible says you oppose yourself. So now you're living in opposition to your own thoughts. In other words, you're walking around as a self-contradiction. You're living on borrowed time. You're living God. You're breathing God's air. You're walking on God's planet. You're using God's common grace, and you're slapping him in the face with it. That's what the apostate does. They're on borrowed time, but that time is going to end. And all that is left is the fury of a fire that will consume the adversaries. Amazing utilization of the Old Testament, by the way. This is the last point. Is that it's not just fatal. It's not just that it results in hopelessness, but it's also hostile. Because apostasy... And this is where the person who apostatizes, he, he, he self-deceives himself or he's self-deluded to the point where he really thinks nothing will happen to him or her. They really don't live under the impending judgment of God because they've deceived themselves into thinking that nothing will happen to them. But that's not what the Word of God says. The author of Hebrews actually pulls from Isaiah 26, verse 11, and there, in Isaiah 26, God is saying, basically, that even though He lavished His grace on people, they didn't recognize it. Uh, you know, turn with me there, Isaiah 26, easy enough to find. Isaiah 26, maybe the broader context is useful for why did Hebrews use it here? Why did Hebrews use Isaiah 20? Why pick that verse? Is it just because it uses the word fury, fire? No, if you look at the broader context of the book of, or, of Isaiah 26, really what's going on here is that the, the, the prophet is making a distinction between the path of the righteous and the way of the wicked. That the wicked, like the righteous, has been shown truth has been shown grace even, has been shown favor even, but they reject that favor, they reject that truth, and they defame the way of the Lord. Look at uh, just one verse before the quotation here. Isaiah 26.10 says this, Though the wicked is shown favor, there's the Hebrews apostate, he does not learn righteousness. Instead, he goes on sinning as Hebrew says. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness. And watch this now. And does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. 
I tell you what, when I read that, I thought, this is my entire calling as a pastor. My whole purpose for existence as a pastor is the hope that you will perceive the majesty of the Lord and that you do not walk out of the doors of this church going, huh, that was interesting, and not struck by anything and not convicted by anything that God's Word says and not in awe, not enthralled, not in love, not affected. This is my whole pastoral ministry can be summed up in this, that we labor in order to illustrate the majesty of the Lord for you and that hopefully there is some savor of that in your life. It says, O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. You see that? God's hand is coming with impending vengeance, and the wicked, the apostate, the person who has been shown favor, the person who knows the truth, the person who goes on sinning anyways, they, your hand is lifted up and ready to strike, but they do not see it. They see your zeal for your people and are put to shame. And indeed, fire will devour your enemies. It's really terrifying. Therefore, it brings me to this point. That in the church today, the wrath of God is just not preached upon. Where are the sermons today on the wrath of God? Instead, let me tell you what you have. Today, what you have is on a broad level, most especially in the non-biblical, non-reformed, weak, evangelifish kind of Christianity. I didn't coin the term, I'm just using it. You have a reluctance to preach on the wrath of God, to preach on hell, to, to preach on sin. I tell you, every time I'm preaching uh, evangelistically at the college campus, student after student after student after student after student, can't you talk about something positive? Why don't you share with these people the love of God? Why don't you tell them how much Jesus loves them, etc., etc., etc.? As if to think that the love of God is going to persuade them more than the wrath of God. That shows a, a, a huge, a huge misunderstanding of the nature of man and everything else. Turn with me to Zephaniah. Bible study time. <laughs> I want you to find the book of Zephaniah. <laughs> it's in the Minor Prophets. It's after Hosea, after Joel, after Amos. It's after uh, Habakkuk. It's after Nahum. It's somewhere in there. But I want you to see that for the Lord, His wrath is part of His essential glory. It's part of his essential character. It's his nature. It's his person. It is not something that God has to do because he has to react without which we would never see the wrath of God. No, it is part of the justice of God, the holiness of God, the wrath of God is. In Zephaniah, God says his wrath is part of his zeal, his passion. In other words, to illustrate his glory. Look at verse 8, Zephaniah 3, 8. If you're there, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as witness, 
Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out my indignation, all my burning anger. He says, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. There's a good purpose in this. It's not just... It's not just that God wants to be wrathful and pour out His wrath. Look at verse 9. There's always a good, sovereign purpose in everything that God does. He says, For then I will give the people pure lips, that all of them may call the name of the Lord and serve Him shoulder to shoulder. In other words, and simultaneously as God is pouring out His wrath and judging the unbeliever, the wicked, the apostate, He is also purifying His people. He's also purifying His people. And that's the purpose that the wrath of God serves as well. We're called to preach on the wrath of God. We have no option to preach on the wrath of God. If listening to sermons on the wrath of God makes you uncomfortable, how much of the Bible will you have to ignore? You know, I did a small, short biblical theology of the wrath of God. And what I found was this, that the prophets preached about the wrath of God. John the Baptist preached the wrath of God. Jesus preached about the wrath of God. The apostles preached about the wrath of God. The early church preached about the wrath of God. Stephen, in his sermon, Acts 7, saying God will judge the world. Paul, in Acts 17, saying God is going to judge everyone with righteousness. The Bible, therefore, commands us to preach on the wrath of God because... It is part of preaching the whole counsel of God, and we cannot shy away from it. How accountable, I I tell you, how accountable are pastors going to be on the day of judgment that have made a conscious decision to skip over passages on the wrath of God because they don't want to make their people uncomfortable, they don't want to push people away, they don't want to shrink the church, they want to grow the church. But obviously, this reveals a fundamental problem. Let me point out several things I think is wrong when we do not preach the wrath of God as Hebrews is setting forth here. Number one, it shows it it fails to see the severity of sin. In other words, it doesn't see sin for what it is. That sin in the eyes of God is exceedingly sinful, that it is reprehensible, that it is repulsive, that God hates it with the purest hatred imaginable. It doesn't understand that sin is the contradiction of the glory of God. There's no deeper way that we can think about this, that that, that sin is in fact the complete opposite of the nature of who God is, like oil and water, light and darkness, like the devil and Jesus. They don't mix. Also, it also fails to see the justice of God. In reading Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that was one of the things that I was struck with the most. After seeing Edwards illustrate how worthy and deserving a sinner is for the wrath of God, I came away saying with quivering lip and a terror in my own heart, God is just. God is just in the pouring out of His wrath. And ultimately, 
it reveals that when we have an aversion to preaching on the wrath of God, on judgment, and on sin, it also reveals the fact that we fail to see the wisdom of God's revelation. See, this point is very important because it gets to methodology in ministry. Most modern preachers today, they don't see that preaching on hell is a convenient doctrine. They don't see that preaching the text as it is given to them there, they don't see that this is part of God's wise revelation. They believe that salvation can be achieved through technique. If you just avoid certain buzzwords, the technique that you develop will be sufficient. It is what God will use. So it's not just that people don't like it, but they actually think they have a technique that works better than what God's Word says will work. <laughs> and therefore, it is an affront to God. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells the church there, be careful how you build. Talking about the ministry of the gospel, each one will give an account how he builds God's church. And if you don't build it with precious stones, in other words, on truth, your works will be burned up. That's why I tremble when I come to the pages of Scripture. I, my thing is I need to ascertain what is it saying and how can I in about 45 minutes then you know, divulge it back to you, teach it back to you in a way that's honoring to what the text says and not go around it. The gospel is not about the law of averages. If we emphasize more love and less wrath, then people will just cast themselves down at the feet of Jesus by the droves. And they'll usually misquote Romans where it says it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. And the way they misinterpret that passage is, you see, the more kindness that we emphasize, the more repentance will result. That's not what that verse is saying. What it's saying is that it is kind of God to let you repent. <laughs> it's not saying emphasize more kindness and more repentance will follow. That is not what that is saying at all. Or else Jesus did it all wrong because Jesus emphasized the wrath of God. Jesus emphasized the doctrine of hell probably more than anybody else in the New Testament, maybe even combined. I, I've done the percentages uh, before in the Gospels. I've taken my Bible software, and I've looked because I get challenged a lot on this. And, and what you find is that the ratio is not even close. Jesus talking about hell and judgment and sin, not even close to Jesus talking about heaven or the love of God. Didn't Jesus understand Romans, what it said there? Of course, he understood it right. But Jesus knows the reality. And this is the thing. What will it do? Well, just like Zephaniah, when we preach on the wrath of God to the apostate, to the sinner, when we show them, look, what is left for you it's not that you and I need to go have a beer together so that I can try to persuade you to be a good Christian again. I need to first confront you and tell you that you need to repent because now the only thing that's left for you, according to this, is a terrifying expectation of the fury of fire. Fire! Somebody once said, don't preach on the doctrine of hell like you are sitting on an iceberg. We are talking about hell. And preaching on the doctrine of hell should disturb us. It should bother us. It should leave a bad taste in our mouth, knowing that we have family members that are going there, knowing that 
God commands you to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord so that perhaps God will grant them repentance because it is not just that Christians will grow up not to be good little Christian boys and girls, is that they will grow up and they will end up in hell. Do we believe it? That the church would preach more about the wrath of God and the doctrine of hell if they really believed it. If they were really gripped by what Jesus said, weeping and gnashing of teeth where the worm never dies, where there is no sleep day or night, torment forever and ever. The wrath of God puts us in our place and reminds us that we are small, that we are worms, that we are nothing in the sight of a holy, powerful God so that when He comes to judge All we will be able to do with Job, put your hand over your mouth and stay silent. Behold the glory of God. Behold the holiness of God. Behold the power of God and praise Him. The reason we need heaven is so that we can get sanctified through glorification to the degree that we can see the wrath of God on our relatives and loved ones, and we can say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole world is full of His glory. That's why we need heaven. Because with this flesh, we would be tempted to buckle. We would be tempted to, as scores of people have abandoned God because they're uncomfortable. Like Marcy, like Bart Ehrman, like we're going to the Atheist Reason Rally. Dan Barker will be there. Like many of these people who say they believed in God, but when they saw the wrath of God, the the God of the Bible was too abhorrent to believe in. What does it take? I'll tell you what it takes. It takes the mind of Christ for us to see the wrath of God and to return in praise. Father, I pray today that that you would give us the strength, O God, to look at the wrath of God in such a way, to be sobered by it in such a way that we see it, we understand it, and we humble ourselves beneath it. And we say, oh God, have mercy. Let it make us more evangelistic. Let it make us more holy. Let us make us, make us more sober-minded. And as a church, let it make it more, us more unified so that we can be more effective for the kingdom of God, knowing that the stakes are infinitely high. Give us strength, Lord. Cast our thoughts down, O oh Lord when they don't agree with your word. Forbid that we would ever think our thoughts on our own, that we would not think your thoughts after you. Forbid that we would have any idolatrous misconceptions of who you are. Forbid that we would make an idol in our heart, in our mind. Oh, God would never do that. No, Lord, help us to see both the kindness and the severity of our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.